The Hiding Place Chapter 5 Invasion Father was 80 years old now, and promptly at 8.45 each evening he would open the Bible, read one chapter, ask God's blessing on us through the night, and by 9.15 be climbing the stairs to his bedroom. Tonight, however, the Prime Minister was to address the nation at 9.30. One question ached through all of Holland. Would there be war? Father warmed up the radio. We did not spend evenings listening to music now. England, France, and Germany were at war, and even Dutch stations carried mostly war news. We could hear that news well enough on the small portable radio we kept in the dining room, a gift from Pickwick the Christmas before. At 9.30, the Prime Minister's voice began. There would be no war. He had assurances from high sources on both sides. Holland's neutrality would be respected. There was nothing to fear. Dutchmen were urged to remain calm. The voice stopped. Betsy and I looked up. Father had snapped off the set, and in his blue eyes was a fire we had never seen before. It is wrong to give people hope when there is no hope, he said. There will be war. The Germans will attack and we will fall. His voice grew gentle again. Oh, my dears, I am sorry for all Dutchmen now who do not know the power of God. For we will be beaten, but he will not. He kissed us both goodnight, and then we heard him climb the stairs to bed. Father, so skilled at finding good in every situation, so slow to believe evil. If father saw war and defeat, then there was no other possibility. I sat bolt upright in my bed. What was that? A brilliant flash followed a second later by an explosion that shook the bed. I scrambled to the window and leaned out. The patch of sky glowed orange-red. I whirled down the stairs. At father's room, I pressed my ear against the door. Between bomb bursts, I heard the regular rhythm of his breathing. I dived down a few more steps and into Taunt Yon's rooms. Betsy had moved into Taunt Yon's sleeping cubicle to be closer to the kitchen and the doorbell. She was sitting up in bed. Together we said it. War. It was five hours after the Prime Minister's speech. We tiptoed to Taunt Yon's front room, where the glowing sky lit the room with a strange brilliance. Betsy and I knelt down for what seemed like hours, praying for our country, for the dead and injured tonight, for the Queen. Then Betsy began to pray for the Germans, up there in the plains, caught in the evil loose in Germany. I looked at my sister kneeling beside me in the light of burning Holland. Oh, Lord, I whispered, listen to Betsy, not me, because I cannot pray for those men. It was then that I had the dream. It could not have been a real dream, because I was not asleep. But a scene was suddenly and unreasonably in my mind. I clearly saw the Grote Market, half a block away, saw the town hall and the fish mart. An old wagon came lumbering across the square pulled by four black horses. To my surprise, I saw that I myself was sitting in the wagon. And father, too. And Betsy. There were many others. I recognized Pickwick and Toos, Willem and young Peter. Together, we were slowly being drawn across the square behind those horses. The wagon was taking us away, far away, I felt, but we did not want to go. Betsy, I cried. I've had an awful dream. I felt her arm around my shoulder. We'll go make a pot of coffee. The booming of the bombs was less frequent and farther away as Betsy put on the water. I told her what I had seen. Am I imagining things? Was it a kind of vision?
I don't know, Betsy said softly. But if God has shown us bad times ahead, it's enough for me that he knows about them. That's why he sometimes shows us things to tell us that this, too, is in his hands. For five days Holland held out against the invader. We kept the shop open, mostly because people wanted to see father. Some wanted him to pray for husbands and sons stationed at the borders. Others, it seemed, came just to see him sitting there behind his workbench as he had for 60 years and to hear in those ticking clocks a world of order and reason. I never opened my workbench, but joined Betsy in making coffee and carrying it down. We brought down the portable radio, too, and set it up. After that first night, although we often heard planes overhead, the bombing never came so close again. Then the radio carried the news we dreaded. The Queen had left. I did not cry the night of the invasion, but I cried now. In the morning the radio announced tanks advancing over the border. Suddenly all of Harlem was in the streets. Even Father, whose daily stroll was as predictable as his clocks, broke his routine to go walking at the unheard of hour of 10 a.m. It was as though we wanted to face what was coming together, united. The three of us walked with the crowd in the street. A window flew open. We've surrendered. The walkers in the street stopped short. A boy of maybe 15 turned to us with tears rolling down his cheeks. I would have fought. I wouldn't ever have given up. Father stooped down to pick up a small cherry blossom petal from the brick pavement. Tenderly, he inserted it in his buttonhole. That is good, my son, he told the youngster. For Holland's battle has just begun. During the first months of occupation, the hardest thing to get used to was the German uniform everywhere, German trucks and tanks in the street, German spoken in the shops. Soldiers frequently visited our store. They were getting good wages, and watches were among the first things they bought. Toward us they took a superior tone, but as I listened to them excitedly discussing their purchases to each other, they seemed like young men anywhere, selecting watches for mothers and sweethearts back home. The shop never made as much money as during that first year of the war. With no new shipments coming in, people bought everything we had in stock. The curfew, at first, was no hardship for us, since it was originally set at 10 p.m. What we did object to were the identity cards each citizen was issued. These small folders containing photograph and fingerprints had to be produced on demand. A soldier or a policeman, the Harlem police were now under the control of the German commandant, might stop a citizen at any time and ask to see his card. It had to be carried in a pouch about the neck. We were issued ration cards, too. Newspapers no longer carried news we could trust, only long glowing reports of the successes of the German army. So we depended on the radio. Early in the occupation, Harlemers were ordered to turn in all radios. Since it would look strange if our household produced none at all, Peter suggested we turn in the portable and hide the larger, more powerful instrument. Peter was 16 at the time of the invasion and shared with other Dutch teenagers a restless energy. He installed the radio beneath a curve in the stairs just above father's room and replaced the old boards, while I carried the smaller one down to where the radio collection was being made. Is this the only radio you own? asked the army clerk. I had known from childhood that the heavens rained fire upon liars, but I met his gaze. Yes! I walked out of the building and began to tremble. For the first time in my life I had told a conscious lie.
and it had been so easy. But we had saved our radio. Every night one of us would remove the stair tread and crouch over the radio, the volume barely audible. Then one of us thumped the piano in Taunt Yant's room as hard as she could. We listened to the news from England this way. The German offensive was everywhere victorious. Month after month, the free Dutch broadcasts could only urge us to wait, to have courage, to believe in the counter, offensive which must surely someday be mounted. The Germans used our airport as a base for air raids against England. At night, we heard the growl of engines heading west. Occasionally, English planes retaliated, and then the German fighters might intercept them right over Harlem. One night, as dogfights raged overhead, I heard Betsy stirring in the kitchen and ran down to join her. We went into the dining room, where we had covered the windows with heavy black paper. Somewhere in the night, there was an explosion. The dishes in the cupboard rattled. We talked until the sound of planes died away and the sky was silent. I groped my way back up to my room. I fell for my bed in the dark. My hand closed over something hard on my pillow. Sharp, too. I felt blood trickle along a finger. It was a jagged piece of metal, ten inches long. I raced down the stairs with the shrapnel shard in my hand. Betsy and I went back to the dining room and stared at it in the light while she bandaged my hand. On your pillow, she kept saying. Betsy, if I hadn't heard you in the kitchen dash. Betsy put a finger on my mouth. Don't say it, Corey. There are no ifs in God's world. The center of his will is our only safety. Oh, Corey, let us pray that we may always know it. During the first year of German rule, there were only minor attacks on Jews in Holland, a rock through the window of a Jewish-owned store, an ugly word scrawled on the wall of a synagogue. It was as though they were testing to see how many Dutchmen would go along with them. The answer, to our shame, was many. The National Socialist Bond, NSB, Holland's organization of Nazi collaborators, grew larger and bolder with each month of occupation. Nazism was a disease to which some Dutch were susceptible. On our daily walk, father and I saw the symptoms spread, a sign in a shop window, Jews will not be served. At the entrance to a public park, no Jews, on the door of the library, in front of restaurants and theaters. A synagogue burned down and the fire trucks came, but only to keep the flames from spreading to the buildings on either side. One noon as father and I followed our familiar route, the sidewalks were bright with yellow stars sewn to coat and jacket fronts. Men, women, and children wore the six-pointed star with the word Jud, Jew, in the center. We were surprised to see how many of the people we passed each day were Jews. Worst were the disappearances. Watches, repaired and ready, hung in the back of the shop, month after month. We never knew whether their owners had been spirited away by the Gestapo or had gone into hiding before this could happen. One day as father and I were returning from our walk, we found the Grote Market cordoned off by a double ring of police and soldiers. Climbing into the back of a truck were men, women, and children, all wearing the yellow star. Father, those poor people. I cried. The police line opened and the truck moved through. We watched till it turned the corner. Those poor people, father echoed. But to my surprise, he was looking at the soldiers. I pity the poor Germans, Corey. They have touched the apple of God's eye. We talked often, father, 
Betsy, and I, about what we could do if a chance should come to help some of our Jewish friends we knew that Willem had found hiding places at the beginning of the occupation for the German Jews who had been living in his house. Willem would be the one to ask. On a drizzly November morning in 1941, a year and a half after the invasion, I stepped outside to fold back the shutters. I saw four German soldiers coming down the Bartelgerstrat, combat helmets low over their ears, rifles strapped to their shoulders. I shrank back and watched. At Wiles Furriers, directly across the street, the group stopped. One of the soldiers unstrapped his gun and with the butt banged on the door. The door opened and all four pushed inside. I dashed back through our shop and up to the dining room. Betsy, hurry. Something awful is happening at Wiles. We reached the front door in time to see Mr. while backing out of his shop, the muzzle of a gun pressed against his stomach. The soldier left him on the sidewalk, went back into the store, and slammed the door. We could hear glass breaking inside. Soldiers began carrying out armloads of furs. A crowd was gathering in spite of the early morning hour, Mr. Wall had not moved from his spot on the sidewalk. A window over his head opened and a shower of clothes rained down on him, pajamas, shirts, underwear. Slowly, the old furrier began to gather up his clothing. Betsy and I ran across the street to help him. Your wife, Betsy whispered. Where's Mrs. Weil? The man blinked at her. You must come inside, I said, snatching socks and handkerchiefs from the sidewalk. We propelled the bewildered man across to the beach. In the dining room, father greeted Mr. Wall without the slightest sign of surprise. His natural manner seemed to relax the furrier a bit. His wife, he said, was visiting a sister in Amsterdam. We must warn her not to come home, Betsy said. Where were the Wiles to live? Father and Betsy and I exchanged glances. Willem. Someone had to go talk to Willem. It was not the kind of matter that could be relayed through the public phone system, and like most private telephones, ours had been disconnected early in the occupation. I went by train. When I reached the nursing home, Willem was not there. But Tyne and their 22-year-old son, Kick, were. I told them what had happened. Tell Mr. Wall to be ready as soon as it's dark, Kick said. At nearly 9 o'clock p.m., the new curfew hour Kick rapped at the alley door. Tucking Mr. Wiles' clothing bundle beneath his arm, he led the man away into the night. Two weeks later, I saw Kick and asked him what had happened. He smiled at me, the broad, slow smile I had loved since he was a child. If you're going to work with the underground, taunt Corey, you must learn not to ask questions. Kick's words went round and round in my head, if you're going to work with the underground. Was Kick working with this secret and illegal group? Was Willem? We suspected, of course, that there was an underground in Holland. Rumors abounded. The stories always featured things we believed were wrong in the sight of God. Stealing. Lying. Murder. Was this what God wanted in times like these? How should a Christian act when evil was in power? Father now housed in Tanta Yant's big mahogany bookcases a large collection of Jewish theology belonging to the rabbi of Harlem. He had brought them to Father more than a year before just in case I should not be able to care for them. Ah, indefinitely. He had waved apologetically at the procession of small boys behind him, each staggering under the weight of several huge volumes. Books do not age as you and I do, old friend. 
They will speak when we are gone, to generations we will never see. The books must survive. The rabbi had been one of the first to vanish from Harlem. As arrests of Jews in the street became more frequent, I began picking up and delivering work for our Jewish customers myself so that they would not have to venture into the center of town. One evening in the spring of 1942, I was in the home of a doctor and his wife. The Heemstras and I were talking about the news of the day, when down the stairs piped a childish voice. Daddy, you didn't tuck us in. Dr. Heemstra was on his feet in an instant. With an apology to his wife and me, he hurried upstairs, and in a minute we heard a game of hide-and-seek going and the laughter of two children. In that instant, reality broke through the numbness that had grown in me since the invasion. At any minute there might be a rap on the store. These children, this mother and father, might be ordered to the back of a truck. Dr. Heemstra came back to the living room, and the conversation rambled on. But a prayer was forming in my heart, Lord Jesus, I offer myself for your people. In any way, any place, any time. Again, that waking dream passed before my eyes. I saw those four black horses and the groat market. As I had on the night of the invasion, I scanned the passengers. Father, Betsy, Willem, myself, leaving Harlem, leaving all that was sure and safe. Going where? 